Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. That the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks truth into our hearts, especially in times when there is so little truth present. So, Father... Open our minds and our hearts today to what your spirit would teach us, to what your word would teach us. Penetrate to the depths of who we are. Transform us and make us more like Jesus today, we ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Up to this point, in our study of 2 Corinthians that our pastor has been taking us through. Paul has addressed a number of things with this church that held a special place in his heart. Comfort in sorrow, forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, the church's call to be light in a dark world. 
He has defended his ministry and he's challenged them in their giving. Now at this point in the letter, Paul takes an abrupt turn in tone. We could perhaps say that prior to chapter 10, he had been addressing the faithful majority in the church as a nurturing pastor. And now he turns his attention to the minority group of false teachers in the church, the wolves in sheep's clothing. He is calling them to repentance one last time before he visits the church and has to clean house. He begins with, I, Paul, myself. Kind of reminds me of that declaration from my childhood, me, myself, and I. He's trying to get their attention here. He's expressing his authority. He's letting them know, hey, listen up. I have something to tell you. He confronts his accusers and calls upon the church to continue in his teachings and to remain under his pastoral and, more importantly, his apostolic authority. Well, we only have one side of the back-and-forth communication between Paul and the Corinthian church. We can infer what his accusers were saying about him by Paul's responses here and in the remainder of the letter. So with a bit of sarcasm, he references one of those attacks right away here in verse 1. The claim against Paul sounds a lot like some of our social media friends who are bold when writing something on your wall from the safety of their laptop, but who wouldn't dare talk to you like that face to face. That's what they were accusing Paul of doing. They were calling him a bully and a coward. Additionally, it seems that they accused Paul of not following Christ like they were, of being mean in his letters having a weak physical appearance and no ability at public speaking. It appears that these spiritual leaders were patting each other's resumes while they were tearing down Paul and his authority in his absence. Paul had planted the church in Corinth and had spent a year and a half with them as their pastor. He had grown to love this flock. In Paul's absence, the wolves had crept into leadership and were destroying the church from within. The church had become dysfunctional and was quickly losing its ability for, for gospel work and influence in society. Paul couldn't get back to them quickly enough. But in the interim, he wrote letters of admonishment and correction and warned them to get their house in order before he got there. He wanted to be assured that they didn't mistake the meekness and gentleness of Christ with which he addressed them with weakness and spinelessness. Paul was experiencing hostility from the leadership of this church and disappointment with how quickly they were abandoning the truth of the gospel he had delivered to them. And it was to this gospel that he appealed in his response to the hostility and disappointment. We see in this passage, as we often see in Paul's letter, a singleness of mind, a clear direction, and an unwavering commitment to the gospel in everything he did. Paul was consumed by the mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, and he wasn't about to let some two-bit interlopers sideline the Corinthian church from this mission. 
So he goes at it head on, boldly, and without apology. In the first paragraph, in verses 1 through 6, Paul reminds us that we're engaged in a spiritual battle, gospel warfare, not a war of flesh and blood. And he says, since our weapons are also spiritual, that they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So what are these divine, powerful weapons that are at our disposal? In Ephesians 6, a very familiar passage to many of you, Paul tells us that our armor and weaponry consist of truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. These are the weapons of the gospel. They, as we read, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Christian, we must not be afraid to enter the world of conversation about our faith for fear of being intellectually outsmarted. This is not where the power of the gospel lies. Colin Cruz observes that the arguments Paul destroys are the strongholds in which people fortify themselves against the invasion of the knowledge of God, the gospel. Apart from Christ, every one of us spends our lives building up defenses against the knowledge of God, creating an intellectual, impenetrable fortress of guilt and fear. Listen to how Paul describes some of this in his first letter to this church. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. One of the miracles of the gospel is its ability to tear down the entrenched rebellious strongholds of the human heart. Not by intellectual reason alone, but by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. When God sets his eye on his child, he prevails. The gospel is utterly triumphant. In his commentary on this book, Charles Hodge says, we must not become philosophers and turn the gospel into a philosophy. This would be to make it a human conflict on both sides. It would be human reason against human reason, the intellect of one man against the intellect of another man. The success of the gospel de depends on its being presented not as something to be proved, but as something to be believed. It was on this principle that Paul acted, and hence he was in no degree intimidated by the number, the authority, the ability, or the learning of his opponents. He was confident that he could cast down all their proud imaginations because he relied not on himself, but on God, whose messenger he was, end quote. This in no way minimizes the importance of intellectual rigor or the discipline of apologetics as they relate to the Christian faith. 
We should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. The point is, however, that the power of God for salvation is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit using the truth of the gospel, no matter how ineffective the human vessel might be, to tear down all of the barriers that have been built up against it. Our reliance isn't upon our gifts of speech or intellect or persuasion. Our reliance is completely upon the power of Christ to perform the miracle, the work of salvation in the human heart. One of the great examples of this idea and this concept, and one of perhaps many of our favorite stories in the Bible, is the prophet Jonah. God called Jonah to preach the gospel to a people group that Jonah hated. Jonah was indeed a racist. He was not going to Nineveh under any circumstances, but God was going to use Jonah whether he wanted to be used or not. After the experience of being swallowed up by the great fish, God finally had his attention, and Jonah went to Nineveh to proclaim God's judgment with what might have been the shortest and most unenthusiastic sermon ever preached. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then the word of God says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. That was the sermon that swept across this great ancient godless city which exploded in revival, delivered by a reluctant preacher who did, not only didn't want to be there, but he was hoping no one would walk the aisle. Jonah had the worst church growth strategy ever. <laughs> and listen to what he said to God after the fact. In essence, he said, Lord, I knew it. Isn't this what I said was going to happen? This is why I ran away from you. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So now, Lord, please kill me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah knew very well that it didn't matter how much he tried to sabotage God's message. If God's eye and heart was turned towards a sinner, the power of the gospel would tear down the stronghold of their heart, no matter the resistance. And the gospel doesn't stop at the door of salvation. It enters into our lives and begins the transforming lifetime process of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the process of sanctification that God calls us to. As a Christian employs the weapons of the gospel mentioned in Ephesians 6, his or her very nature and identity is supernaturally transformed from our very core outward. This is a process that encompasses the whole of who we are, our entire being, and ultimately is how we see the complete victory of the gospel in our lives. Through our, our, through our obedience to Christ, we are made to look more and more like him. So what about you? Has the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that he died on a cross and rose again from the dead to provide salvation and eternal life for sinners like you and like me, has that knowledge of God 
shatter the fortress you have constructed around your heart, or do you continue to fortify those walls in your own pride? Is the Holy Spirit tearing down the strongholds of your heart right now? Perhaps today is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Christian, are the thoughts and intents of your heart being taken captive by the Lord Jesus? What distractions to the truth of the gospel and what diversions from the claims upon your life that the Lord Jesus has are weighing you down and making you ineffective for the most important calling on your life? Paul finishes the paragraph with a warning that there's one more weapon in the arsenal of Christ's church. Paul's heart is with the church members who, being genuine in their faith, have been deceived and led astray by the false prophets that were in their midst. He's ready to confront those who refuse to submit their thoughts to the obedience of Christ with church discipline if necessary. The gospel mission of the church is too important than to continue to allow these false teachers to divide and destroy the church. They must be confronted, and if unwilling to turn from their sin, root it out. In the next paragraph, we see the authority of the gospel in verses 7 through 12. The ESV breaks this passage into three paragraphs, and that's our structure this morning. We see here that Paul wasn't concerned about defending himself, but rather his authority and his ministry. After all, Paul had experienced many, many injustices when he did not find it necessary to offer a defense. His concern here had to do with the authority given to him directly by Jesus. The role of apostle, similar to that of the Old Testament prophet, was to be the voice of God, the spokesperson for God. The apostles had been given their marching orders from Jesus himself. They were his mouthpiece in establishing the church and proclaiming the message of the cross. After all, the very words that we're looking at today in this letter are holy scripture, are divinely inspired Paul isn't being proud and arrogant here. As a faithful soldier in this spiritual warfare, he dare not shrink away from the direct orders given to him by the Lord Jesus, his supreme commander. It would be dereliction of duty. That would be a serious offense. Paul's boldness and authority were not mustered up from within himself. They rested on the authority of Jesus. He also wasn't going to get into a tit-for-tat argument with his detractors because he understood that his authority comes from a divine source. It's not about jockeying for position and authority within the body of Christ. To compare ourselves to one another in the kingdom of God is foolishness. We're all in the same place. We're all clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone and our equals before him. This is why we can be bold and unafraid in testifying for Christ. Speaking the truth in love, wrapped in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, is not something we need to shrink away from or apologize for because the authority and under, underpinning of our truth-telling doesn't rest in us. 
It's not based on a foundation, as we sang about earlier, that we build. The authority of the gospel comes from Jesus alone. Acknowledging that Jesus is the authority and the standard frees us up to speak and live with meekness and gentleness of Christ, an attitude that straddles that seeming tension of humility and boldness, right? Which is really not a tension at all. It also frees us from the responsibility of having to convince everyone we're right and they're wrong. Since only the divine power of the gospel can tear down the strongholds of the heart anyway. It's not up to us. And that power rests on the authority of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is triumphant. The gospel will be victorious. The battle's over. It's won and we're on the winning side. Let's look now at Paul's gospel focus in the last paragraph in verses 13 through 18. Paul was a missionary at heart, and we see that core passion come out in this final paragraph of the chapter. Take a look again at verse 15. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Paul was driven by the reality that there were still places in the world where the name of Christ had not been heard. I can almost hear him say, church, Enough with the distractions and the drama and the issues. We've got a job to do. There are people all around the world who need the words of life that we've been entrusted with. The enemy in this spiritual battle, Satan, wanted to sideline the church in its mission to bring the nations to Christ. There was so much potential for the church in Corinth. It was in an incredibly strategic location for reaching the rest of Europe. But they had become distracted from the truth of the gospel and were in danger of losing their way. There was too much at stake and too much of an investment. And Paul was fighting for this church that he loved. He had a bold strategy for the spread of the gospel. And Corinth was an important part of that mission. These false teachers in Corinth, they didn't have any right at all to boast about their work there. They were building their little empire on the backs of Paul and his associates. But Paul had every right to boast about it. But you know what? Boasting is at best a distraction. And at worst, it's an affront to a sovereign God. Verse 17 is a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. I want to read the fuller context of that statement from Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. 
For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul's abbreviated form is, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. To boast in the Lord is to make him famous for the works of love, justice, and righteousness that he is working out in our lives and in his world. To boast in the Lord is to boast in the gospel. The paragraph and chapter conclude with this statement. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The false teachers at Corinth were doing a lot of backslapping and self-congratulating. The trouble with that approach is that's where it ends. The commendation that matters is that of being in Christ, a child of God. And in the end, when we stand before the Lord in the courtroom of the universe, there is only one nod of approval that will matter at all. Have you ever taken the time to think about that? Whose approval will you have when you pass from this life to the next one? Will you stand alone commending yourself to a perfectly holy God? Or, having submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, will you be under his righteousness and his commendation? There is no more important question to get right than that one. We must be approved by the gospel in order to enter into the presence of God. So in conclusion, let's pose a few questions maybe that could provide some further application of God's word. As believers in 2020 in the United States of America, in Columbia, South Carolina. Do we experience any hostility towards our faith or disappointment in our current surroundings? If so, how do we respond to it? How does the gospel address these things? First of all, let me share a little secret with you. I know what the solution is to all of our current problems in the world. I know what will heal the hatred that men and women have for each other in their hearts. I know what will stop the violence. I know what will give peace to our society. The good news of Jesus Christ has divine power to destroy strongholds and every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. This, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is the only hope for our world, period. Secondly, what is the greatest passion in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ right now? If prior to the last five months you weren't convinced of the brokenness of our world, I assume that you are now. 
Are we, like Paul, convinced that our most urgent calling is the promotion of the good news of Jesus Christ in our fallen world? If you affirm that, then ask yourself the follow-up question, do my interactions with the world, my social media posts, my cultural consumption habits, and my personal interests reflect that passion? If not, then maybe it's time that we pick back up the eternal weapons of gospel warfare and lay aside the temporal weapons of worldly comfort and success, taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. If we do not do this as individuals and as the church of Jesus Christ, we will cease to be salt and light in a decaying, dark world. Satan would love to convince the church to set aside the impractical armor of God, prayer, God's word, faith, truth, righteousness, and the good news of peace. And instead for us to pick up the pragmatic weapons of the flesh. This is worldly wisdom and is detrimental to our calling as the church. We must not allow ourselves to be distracted and sidelined from our mission like the Corinthian church had become. We must not allow the seeds of division that are so prevalent out there come in here. We must maintain a singular focus on the gospel, preaching it to ourselves and to the surrounding world until Jesus returns to set all things right. If he came back tomorrow, what would he find us busy doing? May the promotion of the good news to all the world be our greatest passion. One of the tactics of the enemy is to isolate soldiers from one another, convincing them that they're alone and should be afraid. No doubt Paul was frustrated to be away from the Corinthians. Satan used his absence to enable these false teachers to get into the church. Many of us feel isolated right now. We feel alone. We're away from our church family. We're away from family and, and friends, those that encourage us in our faith. And we know that we're not supposed to do this Christian journey thing alone. And yet here we are. But remember where Paul found his security ultimately. He rested in the authority of Jesus. He found his approval in Jesus alone. He trusted in the ultimate victory of the gospel. The weapons of our warfare are available to us whether we are together or in isolation. So let's not neglect the weapons of our warfare. Use this time apart to pray for one another, to pray for the success of the gospel in our world, to pray for the encouragement of our church. Be in the word as our primary offensive weapon in this battle. Practice and cling to righteousness, peace, faith, and truth. Remember that our captain promised he would never leave us or forsake us. Is it possible that the Lord could be using our current circumstances to pull all of the props and idols out from under us, forcing us to our knees in humble reliance upon him and him alone? If on the other side of whatever crisis we find ourselves in, if all we're left with 
is Jesus. Is that enough? And in the end, would that really be a bad thing? When we find ourselves in the midst of hostility and disappointment, may we arm ourselves with the weapons of the gospel and the power of the gospel, enjoying the victory of the gospel under the authority and standard of our captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may he grant us a singular focus that we may be found spreading the gospel, boasting in the gospel, and approved by the gospel when he returns to take us home to be with him forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious truth that we are victorious in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in this. Help our focus to be upon the main thing. Help us not to be sidelined and distracted by what's going on around us. Help us to redouble our efforts as a church in proclaiming the good news here and around the world. Help us to be light in the darkness and salt that staves off corruption. Father, cause your church to rise up around the world to seize this day, to seize the opportunity for gospel witness, to draw more and more of your people into your kingdom. Give us this heart, the heart that you gave Paul, and help us to be a faithful church in this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.